Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Happy Friday, everybody. It's been a busy week here at Strictly VC HQ. And it's July. What is up with all of these companies announcing new funding rounds? Whatever happened to the infamous months-long summer vacations that VCs used to take? Speaking of vacations, we are taking the next two weeks off, so sit tight, but we have a truly great guest for you today. Michael Arrington, the former founder of TechCrunch and CrunchFund, and the current founder and partner of Arrington Capital, an investment entity focused on the crypto space. Arrington is now managing over a billion dollars in alternative currencies, but he was very open in describing his journey from traditional VC investing to the wild and woolly world of DeFi. But first, the news. The big news today is the administration's increasing pressure on social media companies to do more to combat COVID-19 misinformation. Yesterday, Surgeon General Vivek Murthy did not pull any punches. Modern technology companies have enabled misinformation to poison our information environment with little accountability to their users, he observed. And today, President Joe Biden reinforced this message. When asked what his message was to platforms like Facebook, he replied, they're killing people. Although the number of deaths from COVID-19 has fallen dramatically since the start of the pandemic, the Delta variant has taken a huge toll on the unvaccinated. According to CDC Director Rachel Walensky, preliminary data from a collection of states over the last six months suggests 99.5% of deaths from COVID-19 in these states have occurred in unvaccinated people. Nevertheless, it is still possible to view posts on platforms like Facebook and Twitter propounding conspiracy theories about the vaccine, such as that it can cause the vaccinated to become magnetic. According to a new survey conducted by YouGov for The Economist, in fact, a fifth of Americans believe that it is, quote, very true or probably true that COVID-19 vaccines contain microchips as part of a covert government-led population control plan. A crudely edited video claiming that Microsoft founder Bill Gates and Chinese tech billionaire Jack Ma have colluded to put microchips in COVID-19 vaccines is still available on Facebook today. Facebook retorted that it has made great strides in fighting misinformation and claimed that Facebook is in fact saving lives by spreading authoritative vaccine information and developing a vaccine finder tool that has been used by millions. But with the number of COVID-19 deaths increasing, Facebook once again finds itself in a precarious political and moral position. In an article today in the New York Times, author Steve Lohr ponders the fate of Watson, the ubiquitous face of artificial intelligence a decade ago. In 2011, for example, Watson appeared on Jeopardy to do battle against longtime champion Ken Jennings, famous for winning 74 games in a row on the TV quiz show. The IBM supercomputer made short work of Jennings and fellow champion Brad Rutter and became a symbol of the growing intelligence of machines. Ten years later, however, the picture is quite different. After aiming Watson at all sorts of business problems, IBM has realized that the 80,000 watts that Watson consumes still do not come close to matching the reasoning power of a 20-watt human brain. Watson's shortcomings were particularly apparent in its work on healthcare. Unlike Jeopardy, reciting facts was not an option. 
Watson had to make sense of data IBM researchers found, quote, messy and complex. Today, Watson has found a home in accounting, payments, technology operations, marketing, and customer service. But its work as a natural processing engine is a far cry from the all-knowing supercomputer it was once portrayed to be. Watson's diminished role is not uncommon in the world of artificial intelligence. In June, Silicon Valley darling OpenAI revealed that it had disbanded its robotic division to focus its resources on areas that are very, very rich with data, OpenAI co-founder Wojek Zaremba said. Alphabet's DeepMind has also moved away from lofty, open-ended projects to focus on specific data-dependent problems in areas like protein shape prediction. Artificial intelligence may one day surpass humans, but if Watson is any example, that moment of singularity will always take much longer than we think. Up next, our interview with Michael Arrington. But first, a word from our sponsor. Ambitious companies need a partner to shield them from potential risks, roadblocks, and uncertainty. Foundershield is the broker that specializes in crafting risk management programs for VC firms and their portfolio companies. And purchasing insurance for your company or firm couldn't be easier. The purchasing process is 100% digital, meaning there is less paperwork, and it's easy to manage everything online. Maybe that's why Foundershield works with more venture-backed companies than any brokerage in the world. If you're not happy with your current broker or want to benchmark your current policies, check out foundershield.com slash strictlyvc to schedule a free risk assessment today. Gosh, I don't know where to start. First of all, how have you been? Um, I've been great. I recently moved to Miami with my family from uh, Seattle and getting settled in here. That was just a couple of weeks ago. And so I'm learning all about Miami weather and uh, getting to know the the tech and crypto communities here. What drove your decision to move to Miami? Is it because there's so much happening in crypto there and you felt like you had to go or obviously Seattle's gone through a tough time of late? Gosh, I visited Miami earlier this year for the first time in like a couple decades. And I was here just for fun on a vacation. Part of it might have been that it was one of the first times I've been out and social since COVID. Part of it might just be it's actually wonderful here in the winter. I think it was February when I came. But we just fell in love with the city and got to know the mayor, got to know some people here. A lot of my friends, particularly from New York and San Francisco, had already moved here. Just felt very welcoming, alive. City government seems to care about its citizens and want them to be happy or at least not explicitly trying to make them unhappy. So it felt good. And so we came back to look at houses a couple times, bought one and moved here pretty quickly. That's great. It's interesting. I just saw a story saying that there's not been quite the exodus out of San Francisco that you would think anecdotally. But of course, there's tons of people that have moved to Miami. Is there like a Sandhill Road forming where it's you and Founders Fund and Atomic? How close geographically is everybody? From my perspective, what I've learned so far, there's three areas of Miami that people um, live in. So the first area is downtown Miami, big buildings, and a lot of people seem to be based there. It's where business gets done, and it's very centrally located. Another area is south of that, and it's, it's an area where all the schools are, 
and it's more suburban and that's where we live. Mm-hmm. And then the last area is Miami Beach. And that's where all the fun happens, apparently. And a lot of people have lived there as well. If you're like a young entrepreneur just trying to figure out where you're going to make your mark, they all seem to be located in downtown. A lot of the really wealthy entrepreneurs are in Miami Beach, and then people with kids are generally down south. So they're all over the place. Got it. And do you feel like you have to do what you were doing out here in Atherton 15 years ago? Are you having to go out to see founders or how do things work? Is it much the same or is it very different there? Well, since I'm doing crypto now, it's still a lot of Zoom meetings with Asia and Europe and and Russia and all over the world. But there are a lot of in-person meetings here. So I've already been to a few events here and it's it's very much like Silicon Valley was in 2005 when I was there, started TechCrunch. Uh, it's a small community. People are uh, very helping. It's just great. I'm looking for what's wrong with the community, and I just haven't found anything wrong with it yet, other than the weather's a bit crazy in the summers. Right. So, Mike, a lot of people obviously know who you are and have followed your career, but I think we're probably a little bit surprised to see you steer so directly into crypto. So can you talk a little bit about how that happened? Because TechCrunch, well-known, you leaving to go to Crunch Fund, well-known. Then all of a sudden, Mike Arrington is running this crypto fund, which of course, a lot of people in your industry are very well acquainted with, but I think a more general investing audience is not. Yeah. Well, there's the mythology around it, of course. These stories become embellished over time. And I'll I'll try to give you the the least embellished version. After I sold TechCrunch, in 2010, I started a venture fund. There were three funds. That's actually still going, but I'm no longer involved in it. And it was fun. It was a lot like TechCrunch, except you wrote checks instead of writing stories. And I enjoyed it for a while. But I've been in tech since the very beginning of my career. And it just all became a bit formulaic. And I just got a little bit bored. And crypto came around and I started learning more and more about it in 2017 in particular. And it just seemed exciting and new. And in particular, I didn't understand it. And so I had to spend a lot of time learning it. And I fell in love with it from for political reasons, for financial reasons, and just the energy going into it. And the fact that there are entrepreneurs all over the world, they didn't have to go to Silicon Valley, they didn't particularly care about Silicon Valley. It just opened up a new world to me. So I became fascinated with it. And I decided I wanted to start investing pretty seriously in it. And my partner at Crunch Fund was just less interested in it. We realized in a friendly way that we were just going in different directions. So he decided to stay doing Crunch Fund, renamed it uh, to Tuesday Capital, and I broke off and started a hedge fund. We could have just as easily stayed together, and I had a hedge fund in addition to the venture fund, but we just we just didn't go that way. And uh, you know we're still friendly, but we don't do business together on the new funds. So. I started it just because it was new and I I like reinventing myself. And I think more people should do that. I think a lot of people become very good at something and then keep doing that and stop exploring the world. And even though some VCs I know are multi-billionaires, they just keep doing that. And it's like, well, you've made all the money. Why not just Mm -hmm. explore something else? For me, it's just my career has always been a series of reinventions and starting TechCrunch was one of those reinventions. So for me, this is just the next step. And I'm 50 now. I plan on doing this right now for the rest of my career, but we'll see in five or seven years. Something else takes my fancy. How did you get up to speed? Because it's just so hard for people to understand what's happening in the world that you operate in. Who did you talk to? 
what outlets did you follow? Who did you trust? Well, it's funny, just like the internet space in 2005, there really is no tech crunch in crypto. There are a bunch of sites, but they all have flaws or features that make them a little odd. I learned just by direct research, primary research in companies and, and protocols and learning the underlying technologies. One of the reasons is, and this is the mythology around why I switched. I met my fiance. We're almost married now. I met her in 2017. We went on a date and she was a startup founder and I was talking to her about what she does. She's a CEO of a crypto company. And it was early 2017. I think it was in, it was in March, 2017. So crypto was getting interesting but it looked a little scammy, particularly for those of us outside the industry. And she convinced me to give it a real look. And because I was interested in her, I did. And, and that's what sucked me in. But the same way I learned when I started TechCrunch was just by actually learning directly from sources. The existing news sites in crypto, they're all fine. There's The Block, there's Coindesk, Decrypt, Cointelegraph and others I'm probably not thinking of right now, they're all fine, but they all have their quirks. They have their own events. They have paid research. Nobody's really in it purely just for the fun of it, like TechCrunch was in the first few years before it went super commercial as well. And you know, it'd be nice if there was a TechCrunch of crypto, but there just isn't. And you're obviously not interested in starting it. It's just a lot of work for not a lot of money, ultimately. And it's a thankless job to some extent because everybody's always mad at you. I mean, you know this, right? There's always somebody who's mad at you. <laughs> right, 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 right. Absolutely. So how did you end up hitching your wagon, at least initially, to XRP? And and can you a little bit explain what your relationship is to XRP and to Ripple? It's actually a funny story. So as I was getting into crypto, I was talking to Brad Garlinghouse, the CEO of Ripple. Actually, at the time, I think he was still the COO, but he was a senior person at Ripple. And he told me that some people had approached him about maybe doing a, a venture fund or a hedge fund that was funded by Ripple. And I said, well, that's interesting because I'm thinking about raising a, a fund. And so we explored it. And ultimately, we realized it didn't work for tax reasons. Ripple holds a, a lot of XRP and they do different things with it to try to make the ecosystem for XRP more robust. But if they were to put a sizable amount of XRP into a new fund, that's a tax-free exchange. But as soon as the fund invests, the underlying XRP would be taxed at capital gains rates based on a zero basis, and it would just be a huge tax bill. And so they actually said it, it doesn't work. And at that point, I started talking to some foundations, non-taxed foundations, about doing the exact same thing. And it does work with the foundations because they don't have to pay taxes on gains. And so we had a couple of foundations in Silicon Valley contribute a relatively large amount of XRP to us for our first close. And that provided the foundation of our fund. And we went from there and took other LPs who put in money or Bitcoin or whatever. But so we owe a lot to Ripple and to XRP. And we've been very loyal to them. And we've helped those foundations make a lot of money by investing it responsibly. So it was part of the deal then calling your firm XRP capital, but you could liquidate the underlying assets and then do whatever you wanted? It wasn't part of the deal. In fact, at first, Ripple was a bit nervous about it because, I mean, it's it's their name. I don't, I don't know if they have a trademark on XRP or not, actually. But, you know, they were just nervous that we might misuse it or use it weirdly, but, but I wanted to use it. We've made a bunch of investments in the XRP ecosystem, but XRP doesn't have the same smart contract technology that Ether and some of Ethereum's competitors have. So there's just less of a robust ecosystem, but actually some of that's changing and we're seeing XRP evolve in ways where NFTs might be supported, smart 
contracts might be supported. We anticipate seeing an explosion of innovation around the XRP blockchain, and we'll probably make a lot of investments there. But we're under no particular obligation to. It's simply because I think there's a way to make money there. I did want to ask just the obvious question because of the of being in the headlines with the SEC, I get why the SEC would say it has to be, is it a security? Because you know, Ripple owns a bunch of it, promotes it, tries to get people to use it as more than an investment. I'm just wondering, what do you think of this back and forth between the two? I don't understand it. The SEC basically let Ripple do its thing for half a decade before they said anything. And, and so it, it's sort of odd to me that at some point they just decided now's the time and on Jay Clayton's last day in office, they filed a lawsuit. I don't know if it's political. I don't know if it's personal. I, I literally just don't know. And I also have no idea how this is going to come out. It hinges on whether or not XRP is a security. And that depends on securities laws that were created in the 40s. We're just going to have to see how it works out. Frankly, I think it's all bullshit, but who knows? Uh, Mike, why did you decide to structure it as a hedge fund? Were you hedging in any way? And because the money was denominated in XRP, didn't that mean that there was double exposure for investors? Yeah, it's a good question. The reason why we wanted to create a hedge fund was we wanted to be able to recycle capital indefinitely. We make private investments very much like a venture fund, but we also have a pretty large active uh, team based in Asia. And when you're trading a venture fund, if you buy Bitcoin and then you sell Bitcoin, that's it. You're done. You return whatever you got from the sale to investors and, and that's it. Now, there's nuance to that. Uh, venture funds usually can recycle 25% of their capital, for example. And over time, some of the newer venture funds in crypto have actually gotten to the point where they can recycle indefinitely for a period of time. They start to look a lot more like hedge funds. But at the time we created our fund, that wasn't state-of-the-art. And so a hedge funds seem to make a lot more sense. Now, there's problems with hedge funds. You take carry every year. You take your performance fee every year. And if you if you have a negative year, you obviously take your performance fee for the year because you haven't made any money. But when you go down, and in 2018, we had a big bear market, sometimes it could take you years to recover. And again, that's fine, except you may not be able to hire people when they see that your fund is underwater and under its high watermark. Because they know that the carry is worthless until you get back to that point. So hedge funds can get into a bit of a death spiral if they're down too much because if they have to make up so much ground before they can take any profit that you have trouble hiring people. Our partners, are, I think, are here for the long haul. They've made good money so far. I think we could weather a two or even longer period, a year period downturn. But if there is some downside to hedge funds. And from an investor standpoint, of course, Venture funds are nice because you don't pay fees every year, but you're also, again, you're not recycling that capital. And so as an LP, it's one shot and you're done. So it's just a different way to do it. I think hedge funds tend to make more sense with crypto funds that trade actively. And that's why I think you see a lot of hedge funds in this place. The venture funds in crypto generally just do private investments in private companies. They don't do a lot of purchasing of crypto directly. And, and that's fine too. That's just not our model. When it comes to double exposure, we do denominate our XRP fund. Now, we have other funds now as well in both dollars and XRP, but fees are taken in dollars based on the dollar value. And the reason is if the price of XRP 10x, even if the fund 5x, there'd be no fees, which would be fine with investors. But if the price of XRP were to drop by 90%, which it did in 2018, even if the fund lost half its value, we're still doing better than XRP and we would take fees that we really haven't earned. So for now, we take our fees based on the dollar value of the fund, if that makes sense. Mike, I've heard you talk elsewhere about 
having a really tough 2018, yeah. like right when you got into this industry, things went badly. And thankfully you did survive, which is interesting because as you said, a lot of these things do, everyone starts wanting their money back and then it just builds on one person, builds on another. Just wondering, how did you pull out of that tailspin and where have you made m- most of your money as a investor? Yeah, our first closing was the first week of 2018. It was a couple of days before the all-time high. And then we saw just a bloody rest of the year. We were converting XRP to Bitcoin at, I think, $14,000 on the day we closed the fund. And I think into ETH at $1,400, if I remember correctly. By the end of the year, Bitcoin was at 3500 I'm not sure what ETH was. We, I think it was like a few It hundred. was bad, yeah. Bitcoin fell 80-ish percent, I think. XRP fell 90%, something like that. We fell 42% that first year. So it was bad. 42% first year out the door is not good. But we beat the market. One of our main LPs actually re-upped in December of 2018 and gave us another $30 million in capital because they were pleased. Was this a traditional institution? It was a foundation. Yeah. And uh, they gave us another $30 million in XRP. We ended up using that mostly to buy Bitcoin at $3,500. And that that provided a a foundation of Bitcoin in our fund that we hold even until today. It's now at 30-ish thousand. That was fantastic and perfect timing and really taught us something that all investors should already know, buy low and sell high. When Bitcoin is doing terribly, historically, it's been a wonderful time to buy it. And that will remain true until it isn't true anymore. And so we remain very bullish in down markets and very cautious in up markets. It's not clear to me what market we're in right now. We think we're in the middle of an up market with a pause here for 60 or 90 days, but the things will keep going up after here. But that's where we think we are now. What do you think caused that pause? Things started to head downward right after Elon Musk's appearance on SNL. Yeah. What was the trigger? There's a bunch of theories. So there is the grayscale theory, grayscale issues shares that are tradable on the stock market in a trust. The trust owns nothing but Bitcoin and and another trust owns ETH. They started to falter. They went from a premium on the price of Bitcoin to a discount on the price of premium. And you're seeing some pretty large unlocks. When you buy Bitcoin directly or Bitcoin trust directly from Grayscale, you buy it at par value and then it's locked up for six months. And then you can actually start selling the shares. It's just like an IPO lockup. When those unlock, you see a lot of supply flooding the market and the price of the shares tends to go down and it goes down even below the underlying Bitcoin assets. And it's persisted in that way for a few months now. There's a theory that that has been driving the market sentiment down. There's, of course, the whole shit show with Tesla. Everybody's witnessed that. But also there's just been a slew of bad news from China. So China has repeatedly banned Bitcoin in different ways. They are serious about their efforts to eradicate Bitcoin mining in China at this point. That We're seeing the number of miners in China plummet towards zero, and it's actually making mining Bitcoin easier because fewer people are doing it. And we're seeing the rise of U.S. mining in particular because of that. But all of that has just been a disaster. You see these Chinese miners who were forced to stop mining in China. Maybe they're trying to move offshore of China. They need cash to do that. So they're selling Bitcoin they may not have otherwise sold early just to get the cash to move. And so that's just another theory. Frankly, it's pretty normal in a bull market in crypto to see drops of this magnitude, even up to 50%, which is what we've seen in Bitcoin, and then for it to come roaring back. One of the things we look at are the derivatives markets, so people longing and shorting. And there's a bunch of interesting derivatives markets with Bitcoin and ETH and others. There's these perps, which is a sort of unique model to crypto, where people are betting on the price. It's like a perpetual futures contract where people are betting. 
and you see the longs and the shorts stack up. And right now we're seeing a lot of shorting in different ways of Bitcoin. When that happens, you can have short squeezes. And we saw that with GameStop earlier this year with the stock market. Short squeezes tend to drive the price way up. And so when the market gets super, super short, we get very, very bullish because you can see squeezes happen and drive the price up as people are liquidated and they have to buy to cover their positions. You see that all the time. And it happens the other way too. Sometimes the market gets very, very long and you see long squeezes. And when that happens, we get nervous as well and we start to hedge our positions there. Long story short, we're betting right now very heavily that we're in the middle of a bull cycle and not at the end. In the meantime, are you buying these derivatives? We don't get too exotic. A lot of the really exotic stuff is on unregulated exchanges with fairly serious counterparty risk. And it's fine if you're doing bets of $100,000. It's definitely not fine if you're doing bets of 30 to $40 million at a time, which we sometimes do. So we work with big banks with counterparties, and that usually means buying or selling puts, buying or selling options directly with a counterparty that we trust. And we do quite a bit of that. We also borrow fiat regularly and go leverage long on coins. We also have the ability to borrow coins and sell them, which is effectively shorting. We've actually never done that. Someday we might. Right now we're very leveraged long. I think we're about 10% leverage in the fund, which for us is high. Yeah, it gives me debt indigestion is less than what you're involved in. But um, so, so it sounds like you made a lot of money by holding Bitcoin and also ETH. Yeah. I mean, people ask what we hold sometimes. It's hard to say because it changes all the time. We look at our fund as liquid and illiquid. Illiquid is all the venture stuff. And we actually have our liquid side compete against our illiquid side internally for different teams. Our illiquid is like 25% of the fund. That's tied up in deals that are months or years away from maturing. The liquid side right now, we probably were about 10% Bitcoin three months ago. We're probably at 40% Bitcoin. Now we've been loading up on Bitcoin, mostly with leverage though. The rest is ETH and everything else. We have a really large position in a bunch of previous investments that became liquid. One of them is Luna, which is something I wanted to talk to you about today a little bit because there's actually an announcement that you're going to get the news on. And that's also like a super large position that we have more than 10% of the fund, I think, or around there. I mean, just a private investment that's now. Where have you had your major losses? I guess I don't know how it works in this world (laughs) if companies fail fast or like with a broader tech market, it takes a long time because they've raised so much funding. It's interesting. We're doing some equity investments and it's indistinguishable from venture investing, except we're a hedge fund. And we're using safes, right? We're using the same instruments that venture funds use to invest. But most of our deals are in tokens. And so we're actually purchasing tokens well before they're released. Sometimes this is called pre-mining, which can be a dirty word in crypto, but non-crypto people don't, don't understand what that means and don't care. But we are buying tokens that are either locked up or yet to be issued because the company doesn't exist yet or the protocol doesn't exist. These token deals tend to mature much more quickly than equity deals. Sometimes within a month, we've had a deal at 50x this year that was a month after we invested. And sometimes it's a year or two, but usually it's a much shorter time frame. And they tend to fail fast or succeed fast. So sure, we have losses all over the place, but our venture losses are much smaller than they should be. The number of failed deals is actually like tiny. The old venture trope is that nine out of 10 of your deals fail, but one deal makes the fund. And that's not actually quite true, but we're seeing nine out of 10 deals succeed wildly. And so that worries me. And it worries me that it's not sustainable because of course it isn't. And so we're worried about that. We're trying not to make long-term investment decisions based on short-term success. But the real losses just come in the wild swings of the market. I don't want to get into specific numbers, but no, well, do. the reason I don't is we're now a registered investment advisor with the SEC. And there's actually like legal mm-hmm. 
prohibitions on, on talking about things. But at the end of Q1 or early Q2, we had 4x the fund this year after healthy gains last year. We were well over a billion dollars, let's say that, in asset center management. That has taken a dramatic haircut in the last several weeks, the last month or two. I think May 12th was the market high because of the huge drop in Bitcoin and ETH approaching $5,000, and now it's at two. And we just hold a lot of it. And we're so big now that we can't just trade in and out of positions that fast. And so that just drives tremendous losses. We, we hedge along the way. We try to make sure we beat the market. We always have beaten the market. But it's just part of crypto is volatility. People need to be comfortable. When you talk about hedge fund, so even if you're not talking about specific amounts as of this moment, how many vehicles are you running? Is it just one that you're perpetually adding to and you're recycling the capital? We have three vehicles now. We have Arrington XRP Capital, which is our oldest fund. And we also just closed Arrington Algorand Growth Fund, which was announced a few weeks ago. And that's a new $100 million fund that we have launched with Algorand. And it is specifically designed to invest in the Algorand ecosystem. And that fund is just getting its legs under it now. And then we're launching another fund next month, which no one knows about yet. And I don't think anyone's particularly going to care, but it's a yield fund. Hedge funds have these dramatic swings and have a lot of gains and losses every year. If you're an LP in our hedge fund, you will have gains and they will be taxed gains because we've been trading and buying and selling assets. But theoretically, you're not taking money out of the fund. You can redeem. But if you don't want to redeem, well, now you have to find other money to pay these taxes. So sometimes people redeem just to pay taxes. Sometimes people just don't want these gains. So we've created a new fund actually for our partners, and then we're allowing some other people in, but you have to be a qualified investor, SEC rules. But it is a fund that is designed to just hold Bitcoin and ETH in roughly a 50-50 ratio, and we'll never buy or sell. So the only time we'll sell or ETH or Bitcoin is when an LP redeems. Otherwise, it just holds it forever. There are other funds that do that, but what we do that's a little different is we're pretty good at generating yield. This is DeFi stuff. But we can go out there with the ETH in particular and also in Bitcoin, and we can generate yield of, say, 2 to 10%. We feel pretty safely. And in fact, safely enough that I'm putting a large amount of my own holdings into this fund. And so the idea is you hold one Bitcoin in it, you try to get 2, 3, 4, 5% return in Bitcoin. And while the return would be taxed, the core Bitcoin holding won't and hold it for a decade and, and see if the crypto people's dreams come true and it's worth a couple million dollars a coin. It's mostly for the partners. We're taking third parties as well. But that's three funds. And then we have a couple more coming. I don't know anything about Algorand. Does that compete with Solana, whose CEO and founder we had interviewed here about a month ago? So why focus so narrowly on Algorand versus a fund that has a few of these infrastructure things? Since it's all theoretical at this point, and you're just trying to see what the market ends up adopting. You're totally correct. Algorand is a layer one coin. And that means it's a network coin that has infrastructure to allow third parties to create new companies and protocols on the coin. And Ethereum was the first, not Bitcoin. Bitcoin doesn't have a smart contract layer. Vitalik invented this with Ethereum. And there are competitors to Ethereum. And the reason why Ethereum needs competitors, there's lots of reasons, but it's used so much that gas fees are crazy and the network slows down. So people are constantly trying to find ways to speed up networks and to have the gas fees be low. And there's tons of theories around this. But the theories all basically hinge on the notion that you, you can either have decentralization or you can have speed, but not both. And so that's a very broad statement, but it is largely true. And if you look at Ethereum, it is decentralized, but slow. Solana is very fast. How do they get fast? Well, 
they are not as decentralized. And so they have many nodes, but not nearly as many as Ethereum. And it's theoretically easy to corrupt the Solana network. And time will tell if that happens. And so people are willing to make that trade-off because it works so fast. You have a thousand transactions per second. Big trading firms can actually rise up and have a distributed ledger record all of their transactions. Wonderful. Algorand takes a different approach. And the founder, Silvio, is literally like Einstein level brilliant. He has come up with what he thinks is a way to have your cake and eat it too. And we believe he's right. What they do is they have a very decentralized set of nodes that can be of any size, but they have a mechanism, which we think is brilliant for selecting on any particular block, a subset of those nodes. And they are the ones that actually for that block determine truth. And so you can have a huge amount of decentralization and still have a thousand to 50,000 transactions per second. We think Solana has done a good job of marketing and they're excellent for certain applications. We think Algorand has done less of a good job of marketing and is truly an amazing piece of technology. We have already done one research report on it. We're launching another research report next Monday that goes into great depth technically on why we believe that. So we think that Algorand is going to be bigger than Solana. We think Solana will continue to grow as well. But we think Algorand is already what everything that Ethereum 2 is offering, except it exists today. One of the reasons why the selection of the nodes is so important is that it's done randomly. Isn't that correct? Yeah. And how it's done randomly is very important. And now we've gone deeper than I understand on the tech, but my team understands it fully. And like I said, we're issuing research on it. But if they do that correctly, and we believe they do, we think that as soon as the lack of decentralization of some of these other layer one coins becomes a problem, which will become a problem when their networks are corrupted, Algorand will shine. And over the next decade and hundred years, it'll be well used. Algorand is also unique in that there's downside protection in that 90% of the purchase price can be refunded after a year? You're correct, but that information is now dated. So you're talking about a specific point in time before Algorand launched its network that they did a Dutch auction of coins. And one of the attributes of the Dutch auction was that a year after you bought them, you had the option but not the obligation to return those coins and get 90% of your dollar purchase price back. That happened. It was a successful auction. However, a year after that, the price was lower and a lot of people, including us, actually took the redemption feature and took 90 or 80% of our capital back. So that's all done now and not happening currently. That is just one of the mechanisms by which they sold coins before the network went public, if that makes sense. Do Solana and Algorand and Cardano coexist? Is this, is this like a winner-take-all situation? They coexist. It's not winner-take-all. So one of the cool things that's happening now is a bunch of companies are now launching that facilitate cross-chain transactions. And, and what that means is if you have a Bitcoin, and Bitcoin is not a good example, but if you have Bitcoin and I have ETH and we want to swap it, it's very hard to do that without a trusted middle person to facilitate it. There's technology that does facilitate it using smart contracts. And so there needs to be no middle person to facilitate the transaction. There are companies being built around that. We all know Ethereum is great, but it's slow and costly to transact. So as a company called Moonbeam, we invested in on the Polkadot chain, which we haven't talked about yet, but it is actually facilitating apps that can do all the hard work on the Polkadot chain, which is faster and cheaper, while maintaining the front that they're on Ethereum and using Ethereum-based coins, ERC-20 coins, et cetera. It's super interesting, and that company is actually exploding in value because people need that. And so we're seeing more and more solutions that allow these chains to interact with each other 
we'll still see a Darwinian process, but it doesn't mean that there's only one winner. You'll see an ecosystem where each chain will serve its purpose and have success or not based on their ability to do that. In the venture world, people tend to work with one another and somebody's blessing can mean a lot to an investor down the line. In terms of deal flow, how soon in a company's trajectory are you meeting with them and do you prefer to have somebody else vet these companies and bring them to you? And if they're interesting, great. And if not, you pass? I'd say the bulk of our investments are, are pre-launch. We're often the first money in or some of our buddy investors are the first money in and they bring us into the deal. But we also do late stage. So BlockFi is super interesting. It's a big bank now. We invested in equity early on. Anthony Papliano introduced us to them. We weren't in the first round, but we were in the second, I think. And then the third and the fourth round as well, their current valuation is in the billions and we've invested the whole way. So we're big enough and I'm happy to do investments of all ranges, but I love those early stage entrepreneurs that haven't raised money yet. There's just a couple guys or a couple women. They haven't even hired their first employees. They have a dream. They have no idea how to get there. They know how to do it from a technical standpoint, but they don't know the ins and outs of the, of the raising money world. I love working with them. They're the ones that I get the most joy out of working with. And so that's just where we focus. There's just higher failure rate, but it's what I like to do. And just for listeners who don't know, I've interviewed BlockFi, I think maybe when they raised their Series A, and I know it's been every three months or so, there's been this drumbeat, a new funding, a new valuation. But basically, they lend money to crypto holders. So yeah. rather than force them to liquidate their holdings, they can lend against yeah. it. That's basically what they're still doing. Yeah. I mean, that's a big part of their business. They also have a credit card, which I finally got, where you, you pay for stuff with normal money, but you get Bitcoin as rewards instead of points. It's fantastic. But yeah, you go to them with $100 or $100 million and you say, I don't want to sell this Bitcoin because I'm going to be taxed on it, but I want to borrow money against it to go buy a house or a car. They will facilitate that loan for you. You can also just give them Bitcoin and they'll pay you an an interest rate on it in Bitcoin, et cetera. And they do that and other companies do that. BlockFi is fantastic. They're turning into the Bank of America of crypto and it's a big deal. Do you find that you're using Bitcoin in your everyday life? I saw that you recently sold a house in Kiev via NFT. No, I don't use Bitcoin in my everyday life because it's too valuable to sell. But I did sell the house in Kiev. I bought that house with ETH and I sold it for ETH. And it was an auction process through a company called Proppy. And yeah, that ETH just went right back into the bank, basically. Bitcoin itself is, is too slow and too costly to use for everyday small transactions. And that's changing. I think some of the stuff El Salvador is doing right now is super interesting. And there's some announcements that are going to be made around that soon. But no, I don't buy coffee in the morning with Bitcoin. I don't think, I don't think anybody <laughs> does. Mike, also, we wanted to talk again about Luna. So tell me a little bit about Terra Labs in South Korea. This is the other part that's so great about crypto. Back in my TechCrunch days, and Connie, you know this, everybody comes to you in Silicon Valley. Every once in a while, we go to New York mm -hmm. or something. But basically, you just sit around and people come to you. In crypto, you can't do that. I'm traveling like crazy. I'm in Singapore twice a year before COVID anyway. I went to Korea. There's a great investment firm in Korea called Hashed. And they're like the Sequoia or Andreessen Horowitz of Korea crypto. So I met them. And when I was out there, I was told, you got to meet Terra. It's this new payments company. So I met with the founders. They were finishing up a round. I begged them to get a million dollars in the round. And actually, I begged for more. They gave me a million. And we did the deal. Then Terra was a fairly simple idea that was brilliant. They had a stable coin to the one. And you would use this stable coin to pay for e-commerce goods. So they go and they bake themselves into e-commerce platforms, which are mostly mobile in Korea. And when you go to the Amazon of Korea and you buy something for $10 equivalent, 
you would only pay $9 to the Amazon or whoever the e-commerce player is. And then because you're using this stable coin, Amazon get the extra dollar from Terra directly. And so they sucked up a huge percentage of online e-commerce because people could pay 10% less for goods if they used this service. And that sounds like some reverse pyramid scheme, but it's not. When you have a stable coin, if you're algorithmically pegged to the dollar, or in this case, one, you don't have to have 100% reserves. And any national currency has seniorage baked in, and people can look up what seniorage is if they don't know. But it basically means 10 to 15% of free money just based on inflation every year. Because the, the Terra stablecoin was algorithmically pegged, they got the benefits of that seniorage. What it meant was to keep the peg, they had to issue more of their stablecoin than they normally would just to keep the price pegged. Otherwise, they would have risen in value, which they didn't want because they're pegged. So they took that seniorage and they paid off the e-commerce companies with it. So they created like a, a virtuous cycle of usage right off the bat and just boom, they did so well. But then they came up with these ideas to start launching all these other companies. They launched Chai which is a payments company based in Korea. And it's basically just a software layer. And it's now a hugely successful payments company in Korea. They launched Mirror last year. And we led the round in Mirror because we were their oldest investor and we'd never sold any. So we have a very good relationship with them. And Mirror is a synthetic platform, meaning not real versions of US stocks, like Apple, Tesla. And they peg it to the price of the US stock and you can buy and sell it. Now, in the US, you can just buy and sell Apple, but it's hard to is that like an NFT? No, it's not an NFT because these tokens are fungible with each other. It's called M for mirror, like M Apple is a token. And you can then buy and sell it. But you can buy part of a coin. And more importantly, in Korea, to buy U.S. equities, there's some huge tax rate. It's like 30% because they want to discourage you buying equities in the U.S. They want to keep the money in Korea. Now you can buy this in Korea without paying 30% gains. It just exploded in usage and took off. But where's the money going? Well, every time these tr these shares are traded... So you sell me a, a synthetic version, there's a small transaction fee. And it is very small, but they add up. And those transaction fees don't go to the company. It's a protocol. So they go to a governance token. We are buying the governance token. The governance token basically has a couple of functions. It votes on changes to the protocol. So it's basically like the board of directors. And your votes are based on how many tokens you have. And you get the fees from trading. So the governance token can actually vote higher fees. But if you do that, you might decrease volume of trades when you definitely would, and you might end up making less money. So it all works really well. And so we invested in the governance token. That's interesting. So it's a little bit like almost like tenured voting, sort of. Yeah. And so then they launched another company called Anchor. Anchor is fascinating. We may not have time to get into it, but it's a savings protocol. So I can go and I have done this. I can put fiat into Anchor and get a 20% return. And it's pretty safe. There's always hacking risks and things like that. So it's not negligible risk. But the way they do that is they then take the money that I've loaned the protocol. So let's say I give it a dollar. They loan that dollar out to third parties who want to borrow it. Now, those third parties pay an exorbitant interest rate. They pay 30% interest on a loan. That seems high. But here's the trick, and it's beautiful. And they thought of this. To take that loan, I have to put up collateral. For collateral, I put up a staking coin, and I put up 2x collateral. So to borrow that dollar, I put $2 worth of collateral in or staking coin. The protocol holds that collateral and gets the staking rewards while the loan is outstanding. Those staking rewards are 6 to 8%, and it's double because there's $2 of collateral for every dollar earned. The protocol then liquidates those staking returns and ends up getting 12 to 15% in interest just from the staking rewards. And so you're paying 20% in interest to the loaner. The borrower is paying like 30%, but net the borrower is paying like 5% because of the staking rewards they're giving up. 
And that actually ends up being a much lower borrowing rate than on other platforms. And they've created this massive borrowing and lending platform based on that. We led that round as well. These are the primitives that have grown up around this Terra ecosystem. And now there's dozens of these companies. We can't even keep track of all of them. We try to invest in as many as we can. We've invested in eight or 10 of them. But a new fund is being launched. We're not running the fund, but a new fund is being launched. And this is the news for today that you have exclusive control of. The fund is called the Terra Ecosystem Fund. We've invested in it. And it's a $150 million fund. I think we're the largest investor in the fund. It's designed exclusively to invest in Terra ecosystem companies. They're launching now, and there's a bunch of other funds in it. It's Pantera, it's Rockaway Blockchain, Block Tower, us, Lightspeed Ventures, and others. Lightspeed's like a big normal VC, too, that's gotten very into crypto. And so now you've got this awesome ecosystem fund that can actually fund these new companies that third parties are creating on the Terra ecosystem. And so it's another example of a layer one coin that's just absolutely exploding in usage because really smart people are inventing these primitive applications that people are building on top of. It's fascinating. I, I need to do a lot more research, but I, I took a quick look before we hopped on here and I saw that it's really taken off in the last six months, especially. We were buying Terra at like 25, 30 cents. It got up to $22 this year. It's up 6,000%, but now it's down in the $7 range. So it's been hit a little bit in the last couple of months. So that sucks. But I mean, it's still a massive return, but it's a network that's actually being used. And you're seeing people actually loan money to the ecosystem just for treasury management because they're getting 20% return on their fiat. And it's a real service and it's just awesome. And I've seen these guys grow from very young entrepreneurs to these guys, are the founders are billionaires now in like two years. And it's fantastic. And then more interesting than a SPAC. I still don't get the SPAC stuff. I'm sure you understand it, but I'm looking <laughs> at it. And I'm like, wow. I do not I do not get that. I get it for the sponsors, but I do worry about the, the retail investors. But Michael, we've got to let you go. But I did want to ask you, and it's been really fun uh, talking to you, but just today, I had just seen this pretty amazing streak of tweets by Dogecoin's founder, Jackson Palmer, who just took a dump on um, the crypto industry, which is super interesting because he accuses it of all the things that people worry about. He said, after years of studying it, I believe that cryptocurrency is an inherently right-wing, hyper-capitalistic technology built primarily to amplify the wealth of its proponents through a combination of tax avoidance, diminished regulatory oversight, and artificial enforced scarcity. Despite the claims of decentralization, the cryptocurrency industry is controlled by a powerful cartel of wealthy figures who, with time, have evolved to incorporate many of the same institutions tying to the existing centralized financial system that they supposedly set out to replace. I'm just wondering if you happen to have any thoughts about whether there's some truth to what he has to say. I haven't looked at these specific tweets. I do have them now open on my computer, but I'm talking to you, so I'm not reading them. I will read them. But based on what you just said, I don't disagree entirely. Bitcoin in particular is fundamentally anti-statist, and it, it is trying to rip the idea of money away from the state in the name of economic freedom. And people either agree with that or disagree with that. I'm a libertarian, and it just happens to fit my worldview perfectly. But there are tons of status in crypto. Tax avoidance is hard. As an American, it's pretty darn hard to avoid crypto taxes at this point. And I certainly don't even try. I just pay the taxes and smile and go on my way. But there are a lot of people who are in crypto for the money and not for the politics of it. And that's fine. I'm not sure they see the ultimate outcome of Bitcoin being what I see it as. There are a lot of multi-billionaires who control large parts of crypto. But I think that's why we need to see more and more people get into crypto so that that gets distributed amongst more people as well. But I don't, I don't have much to say about it. And I'll read his tweets, but he's a smart guy. And, uh, and I like reading what he says. 
Well, again, really fun talking to you. I would love to stay in touch and, and see what happens with your new Algorand fund and whatever you're putting together next. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. That's it. Thanks, everybody. If there's a guest that you'd really like to hear on the podcast, please let us know. In the meantime, have a great weekend.